0: But this week, like I said, this is the last sermon, sermon number 12 in living the gospel-shaped life. Um, and so we're going to look at specifically living a gospel-shaped life. And in some ways, all 11 messages prior to this one have been aimed at encouraging us to live gospel-shaped lives. And it's all those 11 sermons have done so by highlighting some specific ways that the gospel shapes how we interact specifically with, with others, whether it's our spouse or our children, our neighbors, unbelievers, or church members. And in, in all the previous sermons, we've aimed to show how the gospel shapes these aspects of our lives. And you can find all those on, on our website. We, we record them. Joey records them every week faithfully, and, and then we put them on the website for you to listen to. But today, how we're going to close out this series, the way I want to wrap up this series, is to show very specifically how the gospel shapes you. How the gospel shapes you. And in some ways, it would have made sense for this sermon to be the first sermon. Because what I'm going to say, what the Bible assumes, is that the gospel shapes the life, the life of Christians because. The gospel is for Christians. What I mean to say is that the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the good news of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, is a message for Christians. Which is why everything we've been talking about over these past 11 weeks about being a good spouse or a parent or church member, hopefully what you've seen is that living a gospel-shaped life in these relationships is lived primarily by rejoicing in and rehearsing and remembering and relishing in the good news of the gospel. The gospel shapes how we live our lives. You live a gospel-shaped life by remembering the gospel and living your life in light of the gospel. What you do as you live a gospel-shaped life is done by remembering the gospel. And so you're gonna see, we're gonna see hopefully today that the gospel is for Christians. Now, I recognize the potential issue for some of you that that maybe you're wrestling with when I say the gospel is for Christians. I assume that some of you, maybe even most of you, are having trouble understanding what I mean. Maybe you don't have categories for that. And I assume that's the case because we've become so convinced that the gospel message is for non-Christians. Right, we, we Our default is the gospel is for non-Christians. And so when you hear me say the gospel is for Christians, you say, well, wait, wait a minute. We're often guilty of thinking about the gospel, as one author put it, as a one-time vaccination that spares us from hell. But then, once we get the shot, it has no further use for us. At least no personal use. Maybe we believe we're supposed to share it with non-Christians, so, so I believe it, I, I took it, I, I received Jesus and I just put the gospel on the shelf and then when I, when I have a non-Christian friend or maybe our kids, well then I get it back off the shelf and I share the gospel for them because they need it. We all believe we're supposed to share it with non-believers, but when it comes to us personally, the gospel is often viewed simply as the message that gets us into the kingdom, that, that gets us saved. Now, don't get me wrong, this is a major purpose and function of the gospel, And if you're here a few weeks ago, you heard a sermon that urged you and urged me to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ. The gospel is for non-Christians. And there must be an urgency with uh, us sharing the gospel with non-Christians because apart from faith in Christ that comes through hearing the gospel, there is no hope. And and so we we ought to be urgent in in sharing the gospel with non-Christians. The gospel is for non-Christians. I want to be clear about that. Those who don't know Christ, who haven't put their faith in him, the gospel is the only truly good news for them. But my main point here this morning is to show you that the gospel is also for the Christian. One author puts it this way. The gospel, it's not a hotel to pass through, but a home to live in. Not only a gateway into the Christian life, but the pathway of the Christian life. Not jumper cables to get the Christian life started, but an engine to keep the Christian life going. So it's not the spark that that simply starts the Christian life. It is the fuel that, that sustains the Christian life. The gospel is for Christians. Well-known pastor and author Tim Keller is often quoted as saying, the gospel isn't simply the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A through Z. I remember in, in growing up at the church I grew up in, Vacation Bible School, we, at the, the Friday of VBS week, we'd always have the, the, the pastor would come in and he'd share the, the, the gospel message. And I always say, it's the ABC. It's Admit, Believe, Confess. That's a good, good thing to do at Vacation Bible School, but it conveys the message that, okay, once you get that, now you can go to D, E, F, all the way through Z. There's other things. The gospel is A, B, C, and then you move on. The reality is the gospel isn't just the ABCs. It's, it's every letter of the alphabet. It's the same news that grows us. The same, the, 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 the same news that saves us is the same news that grows us. Growth and maturity in the Christian life never takes us past the gospel. We never move past it. You don't graduate from the gospel. Growth and maturity in the Christian life always takes us deeper into the gospel. And so growth is not, hey, I've got that. The the gospel is the milk and now I need the meat. No, no, the gospel is the milk and the meat. It's a a depth that you go in the gospel. And this is why when we sing songs, some, some of like which we've sung this morning, when we sing songs with the words, um, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. When, when, when we sing that, if you're a Christian, your heart should rejoice. Whether you're a new Christian or an old Christian. When, when we recite and sing the truths of the gospel, the heart should, should, should be rejoicing in the fact that Jesus paid it all for us. That's not not good news just when you come to faith in Christ. That's good news today and when you lay on your deathbed going to meet Christ. It's good news that Jesus paid it all. As Christians, our songs may change, but our theme will never change. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. In fact, after we die, when we're with him, redeeming love will still be our theme. We'll say more about that in a little bit. But the gospel is for Christians. But, but I don't want you to take my word for it. We're gonna see how the New Testament teaches us over and over and over. So, so we're gonna work through um, some, some New Testament passages and then we're gonna try and apply um, this, this gospel-shaped living to us. Um, so, so I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll, we'll work through our, our outline. So let's, let's pray. Father, I, I ask that every single person that is gathered in this place this morning. Whether whether the the person has been trusting you for decades, whether the person has has not yet trusted you, those two and everyone in between. I pray that as we as we look at your word and we look at the good news of the gospel, I pray that hearts would rejoice at what you've done for us, Lord. The gospel is our hope. Whether we don't know you or whether we've known you for for years, the gospel is our hope. And so I pray that as we as we talk about this, would, would you renew our love and affections for Jesus? Would you, would you give us fuel to, to live out the rest of our days loving Jesus? Would you give us hearts that rejoice in the gospel and overflow into every aspect of our lives because of what Christ has done for us? And so would, would Jesus be lifted up and be glorified by, by this time? And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, if you're taking notes, there's only two points. In fact, there's really only one point because the second point is all going to be application. Okay, so so the point is, number one, the New Testament pattern. And then point two is a gospel-shaped life, which I said that's all application. So we're just going to see the New Testament pattern. And so so grab your Bible or or turn it on. If you turn it on, put it on. Do not disturb, right? We want you in the Bible, not not... Anywhere else. Uh, but, but so we're just going to look through, and we're going to go all over the New Testament today. It's not normal here. Next week we're going to be in Matthew. We're going to stay there. But here we're going to be flipping. Okay? And so we're going to be looking at the New Testament evidence. So there's five New Testament passages that we're going to look at in order to see how the New Testament authors, specifically Paul, but, but John's going to be in there some too, but how the New Testament authors understood the gospel to function in the lives of the Christian. Remember, I'm saying the gospel is for Christians, and we're going to see it very clearly in these five passages we're going to work through them in the order that they're found in the New Testament. And so there's the five of them. They're right there. Romans 1, 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, 1 Timothy 1, 15, 1 John 1, 9, and then Revelation 5, 11 through 14. So we're just going to work through those and see how the gospel functions in the life of the Christian. So first, Romans chapter 1. So turn to Romans chapter 1. We're looking at verse 15. So we're going to be looking at verse 15. So the book of Romans, so if you open the New Testament, it starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have the the, the book of history, the book of Acts. And then after Acts, you have Romans. So Romans chapter 1. And so here in chapter 1, we're going to see Paul's introduction. And in this one verse, in Romans chapter 1, I think we find the most compelling evidence of the fact that the Gospel is for Christians. Because in this letter, so, so Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and we find out early on that Paul's writing to a church he, he, he'd not yet been to. He hadn't been to Rome, but, but he knew of the church. He, he hadn't planted the church. He hadn't been to Rome preaching the gospel and seen the church grow there. He'd only heard about it. And we learn right at the outset of this letter is Paul's writing... That, that he wants to come to them. He, he wants to go to Rome. He hadn't been there, but he wants to go. And, and his plan is to go back to Jerusalem. He's got some, some financial aid for the church in Jerusalem. And then he's going to head to Spain. He wants to go all the way to the west. He wants to go to the edges of the kingdom, of the empire, to take the gospel to Spain. And his plan is to stop in Rome on the way to Spain. And so before he comes, he, he's writing a letter. His, his friend Phoebe is going to Rome. So he, he sends this letter with her. We find out later in chapter 16. And so he identifies himself in in verses one through six. This is, I'm Paul, an apostle. And look there down at verse seven of Romans, chapter one. Who is the letter addressed to? To all those in Rome. Then there's these qualifiers. Who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay, so there's a very specific audience that he's writing to. Those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay, so Paul is writing to Christians. Can we all agree that that these are Christians? Those who are loved by God and called to be saints. They're, They're the Christians, In fact, later in verse 8, Paul mentions their faith, which is known all over the world. In other words, he says, I've I've heard about your faith in Christ, the the way that the gospel is is moving among you. I've heard about it, and the whole world knows about it. And so Paul wants to go visit them so that he can encourage them and so that they can encourage him. So the apostle knows, here's believers there, and, and I want to be encouraged by my time with them. And so then in verse 15, that's our verse, look there at verse 15, he writes... So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, do you see that? Do you see what Paul says? I am eager to preach the gospel to the lost among you at Rome. He would be eager to do that. But that's not what he says. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who he's writing to, the Christians in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to them. Now, if that verse doesn't convince you that the gospel is for Christians, nothing will. Because in Romans 1.15, we have the apostle Paul longing to preach the gospel to those people in Rome who are already Christians, which tells us right at the outset that for Paul, preaching the gospel involves much more than initial conversion. And he wants to preach the gospel to those who are already converted. Paul's determined to preach the gospel even to Christians because in Paul's mind, Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians I mean, it's an incredible thing to notice in Paul, specifically in Romans, his desire is to strengthen the churches. He doesn't do that by by some great new plan, some church growth movement. He strengthens the church by preaching the gospel to them. That's how churches are strengthened, by by remembering the gospel, by, by growing strong in the gospel. And so Paul, he wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel to them, but then later in chapter 15 in the book of Romans, Paul says, my ambition is to preach Christ, not where he's already been named, but where he's never been named. And so his ambition is also to take the name of Christ, the gospel to Spain, where where no one's gone yet. There's an unreached people group in Spain, and Paul's like, I gotta go there. And so in Paul's life and ministry, we see both of these. The gospel is for Christians and for non-Christians. I mean, his missionary journeys is, is going back around and visiting the churches that have already been planted and strengthening them. One of the primary ways he does so is by preaching the gospel to them. So that's Romans 1. Next passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, so go to the next book, next letter in the New Testament. We have Romans and we have 1 Corinthians. And so here, at 1 Corinthians. So again, this is Apostle Paul. It's to a different group. But again, it's to a group of Christians. He's writing to a, a church, to the church at Corinth. And again, so, so if you, you don't have to go to chapter one of 1 Corinthians, but, but Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Right? So, so he's writing to Christians, and all the way at the end of his letter, so chapter 15, that's where our verses are, all the way at the end of the letter, Paul writing to Christians, notice what he says in chapter 15, verses one and two. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if, that is, you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless, meaning if you don't hold fast to it till the end, you believed in vain. So here, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, we see for Paul, the Christians at Corinth were not beyond the gospel. They too, even though Christians, needed to be reminded of the gospel. And so he says, verse 1, I would remind you, I would remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Now his main point, in, as you read further on in chapter 15, has to do with the reality and the centrality of the resurrection, specifically to the Christian faith. But here in verse 1, notice what he's doing. They'd heard about the resurrection. They'd heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul himself. They were already Christians, and yet he still writes to remind them of the gospel. And he does so because the gospel is for Christians too. If the gospel isn't for Christians, then Paul's words don't make sense. But there's more. Notice what Paul says next. Not only is he right to remind them, now to remind you, brothers, of the gospel, I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice the function of the gospel among the Christians there. So Paul goes to Corinth and he preaches the gospel. He he starts in synagogues, then he goes outside. And he preaches the gospel of Christ Christ crucified. They were non-Christians then, so he goes to Corinth. And he comes into their city and preaches this this foolish message. A message of the Son of God coming and being crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, and Lord over all. This this foolish message. And people in Corinth hear it and they say, yes, yes. Give us Jesus. We want to follow him. And so they receive the gospel. So he preaches the gospel and they receive it. Now that's past tense. He preached it and they received it. They accepted it. They believed it. They heard the gospel and they obeyed the gospel. They repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Now so far so good, but that's not the end of their interactions with the gospel. That isn't all that Paul is concerned about. Now, if the sole function of the gospel is to make non-Christians Christians, then the process is over. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to that you received. Remember it. But that's not the end of their interactions with the gospel. Paul keeps going. Yes, they received it, step one. But notice also that you received in which you stand. That's step two. You receive it, past tense, but then you stand in it, present tense. When the gospel is received, Paul has no category of thinking, You receive it and you just set it aside, never to be considered again. That is not the function of the gospel in the life of the Christian. When the gospel is received, it is a message that Christians receive and then stand in. One commentator said they stood firm in their adherence to the truth. That's what he he says it means that that they stood in it. I mean, it's like like a person being rescued at sea when they're drowning, unable to save themselves. When, When they see the life ring thrown to them They grab it, they receive it. They they wrap their arms tight around or they they put it around their waist. In that life ring, they have salvation, right? They receive it. But after receiving it and taking hold of it, you'd better believe they're gonna hold fast to it until they get to safety. It's like, hey, I received it, I don't need it anymore. You're not safe until you're in the boat, until you're to safety. They aren't safe by virtue of their initial holding fast to it, they continue to hold fast to it. A failure to do so would necessarily lead to their demise. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. The gospel isn't just received. It must continue to be received. The Christian must continue to stand firm in the gospel. And I just want to just make an aside, and I want to be careful here, but I'm afraid that we've done many would-be Christians great harm by convincing them and assuring them that if they simply walked an aisle or prayed a prayer that they're saved. Yes, receiving the gospel is the necessary first step, which can come by way of praying a prayer, walking an aisle. But that is not the only step. It must continue to be received. A Christian is a Christian because he stands firm in the gospel that he receives. And I say that we've done great harm to many would-be Christians because I grew up with many who at one time or another walked an aisle Pray to prayer, were at summer camp and raised their hand, but now these same individuals could not care less about Christ or the gospel that they once received. And when someone, it doesn't matter who they are, it could be your kids, it could be your grandkids, your spouse, your neighbor, your childhood friend, it doesn't matter who, when someone ceases to stand in the gospel, When someone ceases to hold fast to the gospel of Christ, the person may be many things, but a Christian isn't one of them. Someone who abandons the gospel is someone who abandons their only hope of salvation. Christians receive the gospel, but Christians also stand firm in the gospel. And they do so until the end. Look at the final step that Paul mentions. If you think I'm being too harsh, read the words of the apostle. Verse one, I'd remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand. Verse two, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Which is to say, if you don't hold fast, you believed in vain, which means you never believed in the first place. Those who believe stand and are saved at the end. The gospel is what Christians receive, stand in, and what saves them. Paul doesn't say, notice in verse two, he could have said, I'd remind you of the gospel, I preached you what you received and by which you were saved. He could have kept it past tense, but he doesn't. He says it's the gospel you received, you stand in, and by which you are being saved. Paul is saying clearly that perseverance is necessary for salvation. If you, can't, if you let go of the life ring before you get to safety, you can't be saved. And be careful there. You have to be careful there. But I cannot say it any more clearly than to say that if you you let go of Christ, who is clearly portrayed in the gospel, if you let go of him, you have no hope of salvation. Now, you can always turn back to Christ. There's always hope in Christ. So so you're never out without hope. but, But if you're not holding fast to Christ, you have no hope. The gospel is what we hold to. We we hold fast to until the end. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to Christians at Rome and Paul wanted to remind the Christians at Corinth of the gospel because holding fast to the gospel is what saves because in the gospel is where we have Christ. In Paul's understanding, someone who doesn't hold fast to the gospel until the end isn't saved. They went out from us because they were never of us, John would write in his first letter. And Paul had seen this. One of his own friends had made a shipwreck of the faith and had left him. So Paul knows. And Jesus told, hey, there's, there's some, some seeds gonna fall in the soil and it's gonna jump up. They're gonna receive it. But after time, there's, there's carries, there's, there's worries, and the seed's gonna be choked out and it's gonna wither away and die. So, so, so this is the understanding of Paul, especially as he's writing to the church at Corinth. A person who believes the gospel and puts it on the shelf and doesn't give it another thought for the rest of their lives isn't a Christian. A person who believes the gospel and preaches the gospel to other people for decades and then forsakes the gospel and doesn't give it another thought the rest of their life isn't a Christian. This isn't complicated and it shouldn't be controversial. Believing the gospel is how we're saved and believing the gospel is how we persevere. And both, get this, both are products of the grace of God. God's grace is what saves, and God's grace is what brings about perseverance. We work with all our might, knowing that it's Him who's at work in us. If you feel like I'm out of balance, I'd love to talk with you, but but I'm just holding up the tension. There's no hope apart from Christ. And so you have a a child, a grandchild who who, who made a decision, but who hasn't thought about Christ. You You don't say, Well, I don't think you're a Christian anymore. You say, What about Jesus? What do you think about him? What would you do with him? Are you concerned with him? Christians need the gospel as much on the first day of their Christian life as they do on the last day of their Christian life. And what a joy. I'll just tell you as a pastor, what a joy it is to, to stand beside saints in their eighth decade who are holding fast to Christ we are saying, I love Jesus today and I know I'm ready to meet him because, because I know he loves me. I mean, I look out and I see, I see some of their spouses. I know you're, you're widowed, but your spouses who are with the Lord now, what great joy they've given me and you because of their testimony. Until the end, they held fast. The gospel is what sustains us from first to last. Next passage, 1 Timothy 1.15. I talk about this verse a lot. In fact, for me, it was a life-changing realization when I understood this verse. It's not like understood in that, there's like this special meaning. No, it's just a plain meaning. I came to terms with what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. In fact, it was so significant, the 21-year-old Nathan decided to get this permanently put on his body. And that's how influential it was on me. So I got a tattoo. If you don't know, there you go. But it's this verse. Because here in 1 Timothy Paul is writing to young Timothy, and he's giving instructions for, for ordering of the church, and in chapter one, Paul, recounting the ministry he's been given, So he says, I can't believe I'm an apostle. The Lord called me to this ministry, and he reflects on, on what he was before Christ, and he can't believe it. I can't believe that the Lord has given me this ministry. And he writes in verse 15 to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost of whom I am the foremost. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on that verse, but for our purposes today, just look at how Paul refers to himself. Now, if you don't know, 1 Timothy is written near the end of Paul's life. It's one of his last letters, and at the end of his life, having accomplished all that he had done, so Paul looks back at all he's done, right? Read the book of Acts. All of that has happened, and he's looking back, all his missionary journeys, all the miracles, all of the miraculous things and ways that God had used him Paul looks back and says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The NIV says, of whom I am the worst. The King James says, of whom I am the chief. They're all good. They're all right. His point is, I'm the worst of sinners. And again, Paul does not refer to himself in the past tense, he doesn't say Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I was the worst. That would be true. Paul was a, a bad guy, an evil man killing Christians. But he doesn't say Christ came in the world to save sinners whom I was the worst. You don't need to know Greek to know that. You just need to know basic English. And I'm, I'm certain all of you know that. He refers to himself in the presence, present tense. Even at the end of, his, end of his life, Paul looks back and understands himself to be the worst of sinners. And the only way for someone like Paul to be able to say that and to mean it, right, he's not just saying it, he, he believes this, it's true of him, it's not because he's harboring some secret sin that no one else knew about, it's because he knew himself in light of the gospel. Because he was still believing the gospel that Christ died for his enemies, whom Paul was the, the, the chief. And the apostle Paul needed the gospel at the end of his life as much as he did on the road to Damascus, because he still understands himself as a great sinner who needed the death of Christ Jesus on his behalf. As a great sinner, Paul needed to know the good news of the gospel, that Christ came in the world to save sinners just like him. Next passage, 1 John 1.9. I'm not gonna say much here other than to point out the fact that this letter, again, was written by the apostle John to Christians. Brothers and sisters, my little children, he would refer to them as. So John... In writing to Christians, writes this, I'm just going to look, jump right into verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he, talking about God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I remember this verse from a young age. I remember memorizing it for the purpose of evangelism. We memorized this so so that we could assure people who wanted to repent and trust in Christ that God would, in fact, do what we asked, which is not untrue. You can tell a non-Christian, hey, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's true. And that's a good verse to use in evangelism. It's just this letter wasn't written to non-Christians. It was written to Christians and John is telling Christians that they ought to confess their sins and receive the forgiveness and cleansing that comes from a faithful and just God. John's understanding seems to be that the Christian life doesn't just begin with faith and repentance, but it moves forward by faith and repentance. I mean, one author says, and I love this phrase, he says, the Christian life is one of repenting our way forward. Repentance is for the Christian, day one to day last the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, if you've never read his 95 theses, you can just read the one, and it's worth whatever you paid for, because the very first of his 95 theses, so he's writing against the Roman Catholic Church, and these are his issues with the church, but the very first one, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So when Jesus says, repent, Luther says, his, his intention was that your entire life be that of repentance. It's not a one time and done thing. And we see the same in 1 John chapter one that Christians live lives of repentance and, and even that, that verb there and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness, that's, that's a process. So the Christian life is of repentance and cleansing, repentance and cleansing and it, and it continues as long as we're here. And so the only way we can find ourselves as Christians able and willing to repent and believe is by continually remembering the gospel. And so we repent of sins because we know that our sin has been paid for. That's what the gospel tells us. Last passage we'll look at. Revelation chapter five. It's a bit different, but I think, I think it still supports the case here. I'm gonna read it. So, so Revelation chapter five. Verses 11 through 14. So it's Revelation. It's one Revelation. It's not Revelations. It's singular. There's the book of Revelation. It's one Revelation. Lots of visions, but one Revelation. But in Revelation chapter five, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14, but we see this, John has this vision, this heavenly vision. I'm going to just read it. You can follow along, but I, I want you, as I'm reading, to think, well, what does this have to do with what we've been talking about? Verse 11, Revelation chapter five. Then I looked, here's the apostle John in his heavenly vision, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, why in the world would I put that passage here in this outline? I mean, think about it. This heavenly vision, the scene that John is describing here is a scene of this majestic worship service. There are thousands of thousands of people, creatures, angels, and all in one accord are worshiping the lamb who was slain. They're worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping him who sits on the throne and the lamb. But what I want you to notice is what is said about the lamb in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The object of the worship of those gathered around the throne in heaven is a lamb who was slain. My point is this, the identity of Christ, whom we will be worshiping for all of eternity, is inseparable from his death on the cross. They worship the lamb who was slain. Not only are we saved by believing in the one who died in our place, but we will forever worship the one who was slain and died in our place. The resurrected, ruling, reigning, and one day returning Christ still has nail-pierced hands and feet. Did you, did you know that? The glorified Christ still has marks of the crucifixion. Look at Thomas's experience after the resurrection. That's a great hymn. Rich wounds, yet visible above, in beauty, glorified. So in heaven, the wounds will be all joy, all worship, all glory, because they mark the reason we're all there around the throne. We will worship the lame who was slain. The worship of Christ is tied forevermore to what he accomplished in his death on the cross, which is at the heart of the gospel message. And so if we're to rightly worship Christ, we must do so as those who know him as the lame who was slain which can only be done by remembering the gospel. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's our New Testament pattern. We could have given more, but, but we'll stop there. So second, so application. How do we live a gospel-shaped life? And I've got a lot to say here, so I'm gonna on the fly be, be editing and cutting and, and not saying stuff, so, so stick with me. You'll find something worth remembering or writing down. But here's, here's just points of application. And there's so much to say here. But primary point of application is remembering the gospel. We remember the gospel. This call to remember among God's people, it's not anything new. I mean, think back to to the Old Testament. I mean, even we just read about with Moses and the Israelites. Once out of Egypt, the exodus became this this pillar in the life of God's people. They were to remember God's act of deliverance. Remember what he did. Remember how he saved us, right? They, They were called to remember and as they, they trekked through the wilderness, they're to remember the way that the Lord had led them for 40 years. Remember the commands that the Lord commanded us. Remember your God. And they remember so that they don't forget. It was remembering this by calling to mind for the Israelites, God's faithfulness, his mercy, his patience. By remembering these things, they remembered who they were. Because they're surrounded by, by, the, by the pagans, by the Hittites or the Amorites, they're surrounded and thinking, well, who are we? We want to be like them. They're powerful. They've got a lot of people. They've got a lot of pretty women. We want to be like them. He says, no, no, remember who you are. You're my people called by my name, set apart for my purposes. And so if they didn't remember what God had done for them and who they were, their true identity would be lost. They were called and commanded to remember because they were prone to forget. And the same is true for Christians. How prone we are to forget. We forget who we are. We forget what's true of us. We forget what God's doing, what God's promised us. Thus, we look, we don't look to Exodus or Sinai or any other mighty act that God has performed to see his attributes and who he is and who we are. We look to the gospel look to what he's done for us in Christ where, where we see Christ crucified for us. Once enemies, now friends. Once orphans, now children. Once lost, now found. And so we remember the gospel. And here's just a few practical ways to remember the gospel. First is preach the gospel. But preach it to yourself preach the gospel to yourself. Every day the Christian is faced with significant questions that can be answered according either A, to what is true in the gospel or what is not true according to yourself or or the world or others or your friend or someone else, right? So, So every day the Christian is faced with significant questions. What's true of me today? If we're not daily reminding ourselves what is true of us in the gospel, about us, who we are, What's the purpose for our lives? What's true of this this coworker, this church member, or this sibling, or this spouse? What's true about my sin? What's true about my future? What's true about my standing before God? If we're not reminding ourselves daily of what is true of us and what God has done for us, because of what God's done for us in the gospel, we will slowly and gradually begin to forget. We must hold fast to the gospel, and we do so by reminding ourselves of it daily. I mean, I think I don't think it's a stretch. I think we see this very practice illustrated in Psalm 43. Do you remember the self-talk of the psalmist? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Who's he talking to? Oh my soul. What? He's talking to himself. Why are you at turmoil within me? Then what does he say? What does he say to his soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's preaching to himself. He's talking, I, I'm really discouraged today. Okay, so what's true of you today? What do you need to remember today? That's preaching to yourself. We have great truths and realities that that have been changed because of what God has done for us in the gospel. Our souls need to feast on the food of the good news daily. We preach the gospel to ourselves, and it applies to every area of your life. What What is God doing in your life? Why is this or that happening? What is going on? Why is it so hard? The gospel says that God has freely given you his son and with him we'll we'll freely give you all things. The gospel says he's working all things for your good according to his purposes. You may not understand why, but but God has a purpose because he loves you and is for you in the gospel. What's my purpose in life? I feel like I'm just meandering through. I'm retired. I don't have any purpose The gospel says you have have great purpose, you have much purpose. How how should I encourage my friend who's really discouraged? The gospel. Remind them of what's true. Remind them of what God's doing in their lives. Remind them of what Christ has done for them. The gospel shapes every aspect of our lives and the more that we are personally steeped in the gospel, the more natural it's for us to, to have the gospel spill over into every aspect of our lives. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves. We, we read the gospel in scripture. Yes, we do it in the four gospels, but, but we read the gospel. We read all of scripture in light of the gospel. And so as we're reading, spending time in God's word, we see Jesus. We see him in patterns and types and shadows. We, we, we see Jesus in displays of mercy and deliverance. We say, wow, God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We say, wait, I know that too but I don't know that because he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. I know that because he sent his son to die for me. And so we, we read the gospel in the pages of scripture. And we do that because the gospel, the redeeming work of Christ is the climax and high point of, of all of history. And it's the climax of the story of the Bible. It's why it's where the Bible climaxes. It's what the Bible's about. All roads lead to Christ. And so as we read the scriptures, we, we see Jesus there. We remember the gospel. First, we remember the gospel. Second, we embrace our identity. We do this as both sinners and saints. So, so part of how we we live a gospel-centered life is we remember that we are justified yet sinners at the same time. We're justified saints, or we're justified sinners. And so, we we embrace our identity as sinners. We, We don't boast in our sin but we recognize we are sinful and weak. And it's in our boasting and weakness that we see the sufficiency and strength of Jesus. And so we embrace our weakness. In the face of sin, as Christians, we're often tempted to doubt or question God's love and acceptance of us. Right, maybe you've felt like you've sinned your way out of salvation. I am such a wretch. Maybe you've thought of that before. Well, the Christian must be sensitive and never at peace with sin. The Christian is not a Christian because he or she doesn't sin. The Christian is a Christian because of what Jesus has done, because he or she is is united to Christ by faith and is accepted because of what Christ has done, clothed in a righteousness not our own. Our sin, I say this carefully, but our sin is what qualifies us for redemption through Christ. Christ doesn't come for those who don't need him. I remember a song I used to listen to a lot in college by, by these two guys called Shane and Shane, they're both named Shane. Right, but this song, it's such a powerful song, it's called Embracing Accusation. And it talks about how, how Satan comes and, and, and speaks to the Christian and, and condemns the Christian. And so throughout the, the, the first and second verse, it's saying you, Satan comes and, and he says that you're cursed and you're gone astray. And, and, and the devil comes and says, you can't possibly gain your salvation. And so all these these things that, that Satan would, would love for the Christian to, to hold fast to. And the song says, "Here's you know what they say? They say, The devil is right. It's true that we're cursed and gone astray. It's true that we can't gain salvation, but listen to that, so that's building, the whole first and second verse, and then the final final verse, listen to what they say. This is the refrain, this is how it ends. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I'm cursed and gone astray, and he's singing the first verse so conveniently. He's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. What a powerful song. The devil's right, but he's only got half the story. We are cursed and gone astray. We can't save ourselves. But what Satan doesn't want you to know is the refrain. The second verse that Jesus saved sinners who are cursed and gone astray. Jesus became a curse for us and redeemed us from the curse of the law. And so the the point of the song, we embrace accusation because we feel the weight of our need for a savior. The record of death that stood against us was set aside and nailed to the cross. The cross. The conscience, spurred by the devil, the flesh, and the fallen world, says, God's your enemy. Give up in despair. That's what the conscience says. Spurred on by the devil and the flesh and the fallen world, your enemies. God's your enemy. Give up. Notice what this is a Luther quote. He continues God, in his own fatherly love, through his son's grace, through his word, through the witness of his people, says, I have no wrath. You're accepted in the beloved. I'm not angry with you. We are reconciled. Do you see those two? Two verdicts declared over you. One is a gospel shaped verdict, and one is lacking gospel. We embrace our identity as sinners who have been redeemed. The gospel confirms our identity as redeemed sinners, free from sin and death, given life and hope. The last thing, I think there's two more points. Last thing I'll say, the, the final, final point of application is, is we long for home, um, which we hold fast to the end. That, that's what we do. And we're gonna sing a song about, about longing and, and pressing on. And so we do that, holding fast to Christ. But the last, last one I'll end with is just we, we look to Christ. We look to Christ. And so we live gospel-shaped lives by looking to Jesus. A, a, a Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. He's probably most well known for his Bible reading plan. So, so we've used it here at the church. You've probably, you're probably familiar with it. He's a Scottish pastor in, in the, the early to mid-1800s. He actually died at the age of 30. He died really young. But in a letter to his friend, I just want to read this quote. This is, this is how I want us to close. This is what I want to, to, to do. There's a a pastor who's under 30 saying this, so you think I'm young, this guy's even younger, but listen to how the Lord spoke through him. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his bleams, feel his all seen I settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. That's our hope. Now let's pray.